I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And my guest today is Lane Aryeh. Unintentional music is about both getting in touch with the music inside of you that you don't even realize it's there, and it's getting in touch with something inside of you that you don't realize it's there, and letting that express itself. Lane Aryeh, PhD, is an internationally known process-oriented therapist and teacher. He developed unintentional music, a way of using process work with professional and amateur musicians as they play or sing to help them transform both their music and themselves. He teaches unintentional music, creativity, process work, and conflict resolution throughout the United States and worldwide. Welcome, Lane. Thanks. Great to be here. Before we started the interview, you were speaking to me that you are a process therapist. Tell me about process therapy. Well, process work was developed by my mentor and friend, Arnie Mendel. Arnold Mendel, he's written probably 20 books by now, and he was originally a Jungian analyst and a teacher at the Jung Institute in Zurich. So he's a psychiatrist? Psychologist. Oh, I see. Okay. And... uh, He developed process work out of Jungian psychology. He calls process work a daughter of Jungian psychology, but it's also a combination of that and Taoism and shamanism and uh, all kinds of uh, quantum physics and lots of different things. And uh, uh, it's a beautiful way of uh, perceiving people in the world, interacting with people in the world, and yourself, working with yourself and people in the world, and uh, yeah. How is process therapy different from normal psychotherapy? Normal is... (laughs) (laughs) I love that word. Uh, um, I'm not... uh, Maybe rather than saying what's different about it, maybe I can say what it is. it's always hard to say differences because then people say, well, that's what I do. So, um, Process work basically is based on a trust in what happens, a trust in what is. It's basically Taoism in action. Taoism, uh, it's so hard to talk about Taoism. Lao Tzu said that the Tao that can be said is not the true Tao, so anything that I say is really not going to be adequate. But Taoism basically, in my understanding, has to do with following nature. It has to do with being with what is. And uh, that's what process work is really about. It's about trusting what's actually happening in ourselves, in others, in the world, and following that. Um, And uh, that can take all different kinds of uh, manifestations. Um, In process work, we work with dreams. We work with physical symptoms. We work with comatose states, near-death experiences, dying, uh, movement, art, music, uh, all different relationships, um, conflicts, world conflicts, and stuff like that. And so, 
Yeah, I want to talk to you about that uh, later on, but one of the things uh, that really drew me to your work was uh, your book, Unintentional Music. You're, you've been a musician for quite a number of years, and you have done a number, uh, quite a bit of work with artists. Is that right? That's true. And, That's true. Um, in putting this in cont- context with work with artists and about how process work is about following through, are you saying that Many times people don't follow through with their art? Well, I think that that's true. Many times people don't follow through with their art. But I would say rather than saying process work is about following through, I would say it's about following. It's about following what's actually happening. So, for instance, with music, uh, many times people are trying to do something with their music. They want their voice to sound a certain way. They want their guitar playing to be a certain way. And so they practice. And all of that is beautiful and needed. Um, But process work is about also following the things that you don't necessarily like. So if there's something, uh, if your voice is cracking, What's going on there? Maybe there's something beautiful trying to come out of you that is beyond your intention. But but most people think that if it's not beautiful, they'll stop it. That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah, but there can be very beautiful things that are trying to come out of things that we don't consider beautiful. Again, from Taoism, Lao Tzu says, when you make something, when you think of something as beautiful, something else becomes ugly. So it's our valuing and our evaluating things that really make things beautiful or ugly. But in themselves, they just are. So I could give you an example. Would that be helpful? So for instance, I was working with, uh, it's in my book, I was working with a, uh, a flute player, a professional flute player. And she started out by playing this beautiful meditative Japanese piece. And uh, the tone was so beautiful and rich, but there was a little bit of breathiness at the same time. So I don't know if you could imagine what that sounds like. Something like that there's this beautiful full tone like, but at the same time there was a breathiness like, Now, I can't do those two things at the same time, but this woman couldn't not do them at the same time as she was playing flute. And we noticed that as she was playing, and and, and I said, did you notice that? She said, yes, that's exactly what I'm always working on, trying to get rid of that breathiness. I've gone to so many different teachers, but nobody can help me not to do that breathiness, even though I play in symphonies and different things like that, but but I, I always have a little bit of breathiness. So I did... I suggested the radical thing, which is, I said, make it even more breathy. Because that's what process work is about. If there's something going on, let it happen a little bit more. So she made it more breathy. And when she did that, then the next unintentional thing happened. The book is called Unintentional Music. So the breathiness was unintentional. When she made it more breathy, the next unintentional thing happened, which was it started being kind of a vibrato. So it went like that. It started vibrating. So I said, well, make that vibrato happen more. When she did that, 
the next and next unintentional thing happened. First, it was too, there was too much air, so I said more air, so she did more air, then she didn't have an, the phrases were too short, and then after a while, the way she was holding her lips, the embouchure, um, became messy. So I said, make it even more messy. And after a while, it was, a terrible sound was coming out of her flute. It was like 10 minutes before she had had this beautiful sound. Suddenly, right, right. It, it sounded terrible. And I thought, oh, no, this poor woman is working with me. And I'm like ruining her flute playing. But I just trusted. I said, make it even more sloppy at the end. And so she made it more sloppy and nothing came out of her flute. She couldn't make a sound. And I thought, there, I've ruined her playing. And then, she, but I just waited and trusted because it's about trust. I trusted and she said, I don't have a voice. I've never had a voice. And she started to cry. And suddenly she stopped herself from crying. And I said, why did you stop yourself from crying? And she said, a voice in my head told me that I shouldn't cry. I shouldn't express that feeling. And then she got really mad. She got red in the face. She said, that's what always happens. Something, that's why I have no voice, because that voice is always shutting me up. So finally, so I said, play what that's like not to have a voice. And she played the most beautiful, plaintive, heart-wrenching melody. And then I said, now play the stopper. And she went, like that, the stopper. I, I can't do it as loud as she did it. And then I said, okay, now play your reaction to the stopper. And she started to do like, but not like I'm doing it. I'm, I'm just making funny sounds. She was doing, actually, I talk about it in my book. Let me find that, that spot in my book. It said, let's see. Then came out a loud, sudden note followed by silence. That was the stopper. Then she began to play frenzied, wild, violent, angry, ecstatic torrents of notes. It was passionate and intricate, resonant and complex. It came out of her like a volcano erupting, like a machine gun, like an ecstatic dance, like the spit that was flying for her lips. And when she stopped, she just stood there for a long time in awe of what she had done. She had never played like that before. She had no idea it was possible to play like that. She didn't even know all those feelings were inside of her, much less that that could get expressed on her flute. So the question for me is, is this music or is this self-discovery? And for me, the answer is yes. <laughs> that unintentional music is about both getting in touch with the music inside of you that you don't even realize it's there, and it's getting in touch with something inside of you that you don't realize it's there, and letting that express itself. If you're just joining us, uh, I'm Anthony Wright, your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest, Lynn Arye, who has written a book called Unintentional Music. So is music then a communication with the unconscious? Or, I mean, in the way that you're using it, it is. Well, I would say that everything is a communication with the unknown. Everything is a communication from the unknown. That some things we know and some things we don't. And uh, there are always little signals coming out 
that we don't really know what they're coming from and process work is all about following those little signals and letting them express themselves and letting them lead us and teach us. But culturally we're taught to ignore them. I, uh, it's absolutely right, it's so sad. And, that, and yet you're saying that it is these little voices, it's these little indicators that are really the key to deep awareness. That's really right. Process, another way of talking about process work is, is it's just an awareness practice. It's about being aware of whatever is there, the things that you're more aware of and the things that you're less aware of. Like Buddhism or... That's exactly right. A mindfulness practice. It's a mindfulness practice, that's right. Because I, I wanted to mention to you when I first picked up, and this was a technique that I'd actually forgotten. I used to play in a rock band and uh, when I was playing, if I wanted to have some new riffs, I'd play something until I started to make mistakes and then try to make something out of that. Well. Probably about 10 years ago, I went to um, uh, a club in Santa Cruz and saw Stanley Jordan, who is the guitarist mm -hmm. who hammers on. Just yeah. an extraordinary man. And he would be playing, and he kept playing the same thing over and over and over again. And the audience was going, well, why is he doing that? And I went, oh, right. And then he started to make mistakes. But then he started to riff off the mistakes. Great. So this is what you're talking about. Absolutely. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I went, oh, my God, I'd forgotten. And, and so it's like that you're talking about valuing what seems to be a mistake, but in a different context, it becomes a valued doorway. That's right. In jazz, if you make a mistake once, it's just a mistake. But if you make it two or three times, it becomes hip. And that's true for life, too. Everybody talks about learning from their mistakes, and normally they mean let's learn from our mistakes, meaning you make a mistake and then you never make it again. But I say make it again and again and again and find out what's trying to come out of you, what's trying to happen. How do we make room for that in our life? Wow, how do we not make room for that in our life? Well, so many people try to shut it off. Oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't sing. Well, wait, do you sing in the car? Well, I think you know? that's absolutely right. So many people shut it off. That's where trust comes in. Um, I would say that I have had so many experiences over the years in which I've seen th horrible things. I mean, we're talking about horrible things turn into beautiful things, whether it's in music or working with individuals who have been had horrible experiences or working with groups in conflict like in the Balkans working with Serbs and Croats and Muslims uh, I've seen All the most different. horrible things turn into the most beautiful things it reminds me of a story that uh, I write about in my book one of my favorite little stories is um, an old Jewish story about a, 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 a king who had a beautiful diamond. And it was a huge, beautiful, clear diamond. And for somehow something happened and that diamond got scratched. And so the king sent for his diamond polishers. But they said, it's too deep, we can't polish it away. So he sent for his diamond cutters. They said, it's so deep that if we cut it, we would ruin the diamond. So he didn't know what to do. And then... A dime, uh, uh, an artist came to town, and the artist came and, uh, and said, I can help you. And she 
made another scratch in the diamond and another scratch and another scratch. And out of that diamond, out of that original scratch, she etched a beautiful rose on the diamond. And that first huge scratch was its um, stem. And the diamond was more beautiful than it had been before. That's remarkable. So this is the same thing. I have seen so many irreparable scratches transform into the most beautiful roses. So it's really taking the time to attend to what we feel is not beautiful in our life. That's right. Because those are actually the doorways, you're saying, in art or in writing or in everyday expression um, to what it is that wants to be spoken or and said, having expressed. And having said that, of course, the other side comes up. It's also paying attention to what is beautiful. It's paying attention to whatever is there. Some people spend their lives not paying attention to what's beautiful. Some people are identified with paying attention to the not beautiful things. And for them, the thing that they're not as much aware of is the beautiful things. So again, beautiful, not beautiful, those are all our value judgments. Mm -hmm. The question just is, what is? And pay attention to that. Well, we're going to have to take a short break here. Uh, I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And uh, how can people get a hold of you, Lane? Well, I've got... Uh, you can either call me at 415... Four five six seven eight nine seven, or you can uh, check out my website, which is www.processworklane.com. That's processworklane, all one word. It's L A Y N E. Just L A N E. A L A N E. Okay. Well, uh, I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest Lane Arye. Uh, who has written a book, Unintentional Music, and we'll be right back after a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, Lane Arye. And Lane has written a book called Unintentional Music, about process work. And before the break, Lane, we were talking about how uh, a person can attend to that in their life which seems to be a mistake and not necessarily beautiful. And um, one of the things that I saw in the, t in the description of process work was a mention of what are called subchannels. Can you talk to us about what subchannels are in process work? Well, first of all, let's talk about channels. Oh, okay. Channels. Uh, we, there are lots of different modes of experience that we that we have different ways of being aware so for instance we see things that's the visual channel we hear things that's the auditory channel some things happen there's there's words and sentences that's the verbal channel we uh, feel things in our bodies we call that the proprioceptive channel or the body feeling channel then we move through space. That's a different way of experiencing things than just feeling. That's We call that the movement channel or the kinesthetic channel. And then there are more composite channels, which is a combination of those other channels. For instance, relationship. What happens in relationship 
can't just be reduced to that we're hearing things and feeling things. There's a whole different thing that's going on with two people and then there's, so that's the relationship channel, and then there's the world channel, and that's whatever happens out there in the world or in groups of people or in the world itself, and uh, synchronicities and things are also world channel events. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really useful to, to know, to, to, to try to be aware, not just of what we're aware of, but how we're aware of it, because... Uh, that is really the language that the experience itself is teaching us in. So, for instance, if my body has an ache or a pain and I just try to uh, uh, listen to it, it's not necessarily talking to me in the auditory channel or in the verbal channel, so I may not hear anything but I may be able to feel something and let that feeling express itself more and unfold itself. So by, by letting, uh, by noticing also how we're noticing things, then we can help the experiences to express themselves and, and be expressed through us. So the subchannels would be? Subchannels then is a word that I made up to uh, channels is a more d typical process work word de developed by Arnie Mandel. Subchannels are something that I made up to, to talk about what's happening actually in the details of the auditory channel, or that's where music happens. Uh, so um, in the auditory channel, there's, there's pitch, so that's how low or how high something right, is, right. And, and there's volume how loud or how soft something is, or um, there's uh, timbre, that's the different kinds of things that you with your voice, all those are different timbres, you know, um, the, the, the tone quality, and uh, I'm missing one here, somebody help me out here, pitch, volume, oh, and then, and then time, that's a, a combination of rhythm and Tempo Meter. and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, those are the different subchannels. I guess why I'm wanting to know about this is because you also talk about getting out of the box with primary and secondary processes. Are they analogous somehow? Uh, well, now we're getting kind of complex here into theory, but the, the basic idea is there's some parts of ourselves that we identify with. I'm me. I'm not you, right? And then there's parts of our, and so the part of myself that I identify with, that I'm more aware of, that I'm more intending to do, we call that more a primary process. And then there's the other parts of me that I don't think of as myself, right? I think, oh, well, I'm not George Bush. That's not me. I'm not, I don't have that kind of, personality or that kind of power or something like that. That's not, that's not, I'm not aware of that in myself. Uh, so uh, that would be more of a secondary process. Let's say I dream about George Bush at night. That's not something that I've done lately, but whatever I, let's, let, I, whatever I dream <laughs> about, that could be then something more of a secondary process. And, uh, or some, somebody that disturbs me out there, or somebody who I, 
who, who I'm attracted to or who I love, but I feel I could never be like that person. Those would be more secondary processes. And how do you work with these? You realize that those things are also me. And, uh, Which is a you, prime tenant of Buddhism that's and right. Vedanta and all the mindfulness practice. That's right. It's a basically a mindfulness practice. That's oh, right. Okay. So it kind of brings it all back in to say, okay, how am I estranged from me? Bingo. <laughs> you know, one of the things that um, I continually want to do is invite people to uh, play their instruments more. <laughs> And um, um, one of the, th- you know, and, and so many adults have had, and even children nowadays, have had difficult experiences with uh, music education. Um, what do you have to offer for people who have had those diff- difficult experiences and for even the music educators that may be listening to us? Well, that's a, there's actually a whole chapter in my book called Process-Oriented Music Lessons, where I talk about um, my work with music teachers and, uh, and music students because so many of us have really had horrible experiences as, a, as, as kids or even as adults. That's right, a rap on the knuckle or you are singing out of tune or... Or, oh, stop, stop, stop. Yeah, exactly. Don't so, you know anything? Yeah, and um, so music lessons and music teachers can be really benefited by process work. It, I, for, for some reason, I don't know why, but in Switzerland, I have a, a big following among music teachers in Switzerland, and uh, I've done a lot of work there in conservatories of music over there in Switzerland, and uh, there's actually a, a, a student of mine... Uh, has actually written a book. Unfortunately, it's in German, but if anybody reads German is interested, I'd be happy to get you a, a copy of that. Has written a book about using uh, unintentional music with music teachers and music lessons and music students. And um, let's see, if, is there one thing that I can say about that? I guess the, the one easy thing to say about that is if something's coming out of your student that you don't like, Maybe rather than trying only to teach them what you do like, why don't you also follow what you don't like? It's great to teach. It's great to teach the way things should be. But I'll give you a, a very short example. So there was a music teacher who I was working with. I was sitting in on his lessons uh, for a while, and he, he asked me to come and, and help him with his lessons. And he play, he, his, his student, uh, who was about, I think about eight, was playing, um, he wanted the, the student to play the exercises in the piano book. And the moment he would get through one, he would check it off and say next, and check it off and say next. He wanted to go at a quick pace through that. And she, on the other hand, would arrange her keys her, her the fingers, student. Her, the student would arrange her fingers on the keys and then <gasps> take them off and put them back and take them off and put them back and she would like play really slowly and he said, no, no, play it faster. And no matter how much he tried, she didn't do it. So I suggested that she be able to play as slowly as she wanted. And she 
oh so slowly arranged her fingers on the keys and then started to play this little simple finger exercise but with such feeling and such beautiful depth he was awed. He had heard that finger exercise thousands of times, but never like that. So she had her own innate musicality that was trying to come out in her pain-in-the-neck way of not being able to do it fast enough. So that's just a little way of just following what is. It's all the same thing. Following what is rather than what you expect it to be or think it should be. If you're just joining us, I'm Anthony Wright. I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, Lane Arye, who has written a book called Unintentional Music, about music and process work. And so when that music teacher had um, the patience then to wait for that doorway to open, where this young girl or young woman was playing, there was some amazing things that showed up. So part of your, it sounds like part of your offering then is that we need to be patient with our mistakes. I would go further than that. I would say we need to be patient with whatever unknown thing is going on. We need to be patient enough to find out we live in such a fast-paced society. We want this information immediately. But the information, I mean, very often it can happen very quickly also. That, that, that ended up being actually very quick. The, the moment I suggested um, be as slow as you want, a minute later it, it, it all came out. It, 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 so so there's, there can be a quickness about our awareness of things and following them, but to be patient with the speed with which our deepest selves want to express themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is very Ericksonian, after the work of Milton Erickson, uh, who would uh, teach utilization of whatever happened to present itself. Beautiful, beautiful. And, exactly. and it was really a, a modality for, uh, a uh, it was a modality for uh, attaining rapport or developing rapport with the unconscious. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and you're saying that it's possible for everyone to do that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Are there some things that we can do, uh, that our listeners can do um, in their everyday life to, to open up to more of what is wanting to be said? Absolutely. I mean, there's a ton of books about this, too. There's, there's different, first of all, there's different exercises in my book, or Arnie mm -hmm. Mandel mm -hmm. has a ton of books that, are, that uh, have exercises in them. Some of, some of his, his uh, latest ones, for instance, Quantum Mind and Healing is a beautiful book um, about working with physical symptoms. Uh, 24 Hour Lucid Dreaming. No, that's the subtitle. What's the Dreaming While Awake is the name of the book. 24 Dreaming Hour Lucid. While Awake. Yeah, and so it's there are some some very beautiful and in a way simple, although not easy, exercises that we can do all day long. For instance, right now, if, if you want your listener, all of you listeners, just kind of relax your mind for a moment and notice what flirts with your attention. 
in, in wherever you are, if you're driving, then be a little bit mindful of the, the driving. You might want to do this when you get home rather than now as you're driving. But if you're at home, just notice what flirts with your attention in your room. Just relax your mind, relax your eyes, and something might flirt with your attention. And then notice the quality that that thing has. For instance, I'm doing that right now. I'm relaxing myself and I'm noticing... For some, re for some reason, Anthony, the, the whiteness of your paper, your notebook over there, but I'm not really seeing it as a notebook, I'm just seeing whiteness. And so if I get into that whiteness myself, it, it caught my attention for some reason. Now I'm trying to notice that there's a brightness in that. And now the next step would be to shape-shift and become that brightness myself. And as I do that, I notice my heart kind of starting to radiate. And I feel kind of a Now I make a motion and a sound that goes along with that. My hands are radiating out from my heart like that. And I feel kind of like a star or something like that that's generating its own light. Anyway, I'm not going to go further with my oh, own inner oh, work here. wonderful. But but uh, just feeling that I'm not just a person, I'm also, I'm also light that's radiating out. And that's not something that I normally identify with, but it feels really nice to do it, actually. Yes. So, so again, as you see from that, it's not just about the mistakes and the bad things and stuff like that. It's about whatever, whatever catches your attention, whatever, you, whatever is not you. That's also you. That, 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 that whiteness, that brightness is also me that I, I, I wasn't paying attention to before. But it really takes an, an exercise of um, attention and attending to uh, let go of the normal cultural conditioning of I'm a separate person from you and I'm not you and you do something that isn't me, and I'm, you know, there's all sorts of judgments that get in the way, all sorts of ego stuff in the way. What you've just demonstrated is letting go of all of that. Well, just I would. what happens to show up. I wouldn't only let go of it. I would say, you're right. I am different than you. I am me. And you are you. And that is absolutely right on one level. On the consensus reality level, that is so true. And yet at night, when I go to sleep, and I dream about you, or I dream about whatever, I'm also all of those other things. So on, on another level, on the, on the level of, of dreamland, and in process work we use dreaming in, in a larger sense. It's not just when we go to sleep, but we're dreaming all the time, really. On, on that dreamland level, we, I am all of those different things as well. And on the basic, essential level, we all come from the same ground of being or that same first essence. So we're all just manifestations of that. And with that, we're going to take a short break. Um, it's hard to improve on that. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. On Attunement and uh, we're talking with my guest, Lane Arie, who has written a book called Unintentional Music. And how can people get a hold of you, Lane? either by phone at 415-456-7897 or on my website, which is www.processworklane.com. That's L-A-N-E. Processworklane is all one word, dot com.
Great. Thanks very much. And we'll take a short break and be right back. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And we're talking with my guest, Lane Aryeh, who has written a book called Unintentional Music, about process work. And before the break, Lane, you were speaking about dream work and Arnie Mandel. And I'd like to ask you about uh, what... Can you talk about the process work and following your dreaming process? Ah, that's such a beautiful thing to talk about. Yeah. You, want, you have more of a question about it? I, well, um, no, go ahead. Let's see. Following the... Well... What seems to suggest itself. Jung said that we're always dreaming. Always uh, dreaming. Always dreaming. You know, uh, uh, that dreams are not just something that happens at night when we're sleeping, but that the what Jung called the unconscious uh, is, is uh, a self-creating thing that, that just... Unfortunately, you can't see my hands. I'm... I'm, I'm showing kind of a, a fountain coming up from underneath and, and, and kind of so so expanding out. yeah so our our uh, our dreaming process is something that is always happening, not just something that's happening at night. So for instance, when I was I was working with your little piece of paper there a moment ago with your notebook and got in touch with my own kind of brightness and radiance. Uh, and that is the dreaming process that is showing itself. Or, or uh, when we were talking about working with that musician earlier in the show and uh, getting in touch with, with all of that music coming up inside of her and all of that expression, that's dreaming trying to happen. There's something that's trying to happen. And so that, that can express itself in its dreams. It can express itself in our body symptoms. It can express itself in conflicts that we have with other people. It can express itself in world conflicts. And, uh, and so d- what we're always doing in process work is working with that dreaming process however it shows itself. So how do we begin or continue or further heighten our awareness to uh, 24-hour lucid dreaming? Well, uh, pay attention to your dreams at night. They're beautiful. They're like blueprints of this whole process, little snapshots of it. But all of the time, what's, what's, what's going on? Again, you just notice what flirts with your attention and, and identify with that, become that. Uh, find out whoever, if somebody bugs you in your, in your personal life or... Or, or attracts you in your personal life, or, or out, in, out in the world at large, in the newspaper, if something bothers you, don't just look at that as if it's something other than you and either get mad at it or, or longing for it, but also find that inside of yourself. There's something in that that's inside of you. And I actually think that, that that's something that can help us uh, create peace in this world and not have so much war because so much war and conflict is about that's out there and that's not me and I don't like that thing over there and those terrorists out there they 
did something bad to us and killed innocent civilians and then we're not noticing how we are killing innocent civilians ourselves, right? And so we're just looking at them as if they're different from us instead of finding that inside of ourselves as well. Because I was going to ask you specifically about the work that you did in the Balkans and how you were able to come to the kind of consensus that you did. Yeah, well, I've done a lot of work with, with uh, people in conflict all over the world, and particularly in the Balkans. My friend Arlene Oderdon and I did a six-year project for the UN High Commission for Refugees out there, and uh, not six years in a row, but right. we went again and again and again over six years. And uh, again, it's the same thing. It's trusting what's actually happening. Like the first time we were there, sorry, I like to tell stories. The first time we were there um, uh, back in 1996, this was a year after the war started, and uh, we were sitting with a group of Serbs and Croats and Muslims, and uh, right on the border of what used to be really the war zone, this was a really bombed out place where we were sitting, and uh, uh, every and we were like, okay, so let's work with what's let's work with the conflict. And they all said, we don't have any conflict. We love each other. But then the Serbs would go to coffee with the Serbs, the Croats with the Croats, the Bosnian Muslims would go to coffee with the Bosnian Muslims, and then they would come back and say that they all love each other, kind of through gritted teeth. And finally, <laughs> on the on the third afternoon of a four day forum, some woman had the courage to say, excuse me, I feel a little bit more comfortable with the people from my ethnic group. And all hell broke loose. Whoa. Everybody started shouting, I knew I couldn't trust you. And so my friend and I, my co-facilitator and I were like, oh, well, thank God it's finally out. So why don't you trust her? Because her kind did this to my family. Oh, yeah, well, your kind raped my sister. Well, your kind killed my brother. And then the story started to pour out. And then so we started to listen. And after a while, they started to listen to each other. And after a while, they started to feel what each other were saying and feel each other. And out of that, at the end of that day, I mean, a lot more comes out. I actually wrote an article with my friend about it. If anybody's interested, you can email me and I'll email it to you um, called Transforming Conflict into Community. Um, but, uh, but at the end of that day, uh, magically a, a guitar appeared, about 10 bottles of wine, and there was a spontaneous party, and suddenly everybody was singing everybody else's songs. Every, because just years before, 10 years before that, everybody was all in the same country, and everybody was intermarried with each other there. So they all, everybody was singing the Serb songs, everybody was singing the Croat songs, everybody was singing the Bosnian songs, and there was a real feeling of unity there. Now the thing, before that they had been saying, we love each other, but the love wasn't there because of the mistrust. Once the mistrust was able to come out and we were able to follow that mistrust, then we were able to follow that all the way until the love was able to actually really be there. So again, it's just like with an individual. It's following the things that you're afraid of or you don't think should be there, and then out of that, something beautiful can happen. You think that's a lot of what's going on in, in Iraq now? I think that's what's going on all over the world right now. 
My goodness, if you're just joining us, uh, I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're speaking with my guest, Lane Arier. Well, we've got just a few minutes left in the show, and I wanted to ask you also about your experience with Bobby McFerrin. <laughs> Bobby, Bobby is a beautiful, beautiful man, uh, an inc- obviously an incredible singer, but also an incredible soul. And um, I had the good fortune of uh, studying with him back in the early 80s before I got in touch with process work. And um, I was probably his worst student, but oh, no. uh, <laughs> but he taught me an incredible amount, uh, not just about singing, although he taught me a lot about singing and about music, but he taught me about about, uh, what did he really teach me? He taught me about really going for what you want. He taught me also about uh, really practicing. And I thought, I thought, oh, improvisation, I can do whatever I want. Oh, great, ooh, I can just be totally free. But he taught me that in order to have freedom, you have to really have discipline. And uh, so you're looking quizzically Tell us more about, about that. that. Well, that in order to really have freedom, you have to learn. You know, jazz, jazz musicians are incredibly free because they know the form so well, because they woodshed, because they practice their scales, because they practice their chops. Then they can forget all about that and just be free. I thought back then, I was in my 20s, and I thought, oh, I can just be free. I'm getting, Bob McFerrin is going to teach me to be free, but he didn't teach me to be free. He taught me to he set sent my away. chops. Yeah, he, he sent me down to woodshed. And, uh, come back when you're... Ex- and he literally did. He, he, he actually literally did send me away and say, I want you to s- study this with this teacher and come back in six months. And then I would come back in six months, and he would say, okay, now let's see what you can do. Okay, now you can do this, but can you do this? No. Okay, now I want you to go and study with this teacher and come back in six months. And that, that, that happened again and again. And uh, so, I mean, maybe if I had been able to do all those things, he probably would have kept me on as a, as a student earlier. But, uh, but, but it, was, it was a fantastic experience just to learn about that discipline, the, the combination of discipline and freedom. And I would say in terms of what we were talking about before, what I identify with and what I don't identify with, I identified with freedom, so I had to learn about discipline. Somebody else who identifies with discipline is going to have to learn about freedom. Yeah, there are several uh, uh, professional musicians that play at the concert level uh, in some local professional orchestras, and they say, you know, they're scared to death of improvisation. They say, oh, we do note reading very well, but I can't improvise. So It's that same thing yeah. about what do you identify with and what don't you identify with. And following that thing that's a little bit out of your comfort zone, that's getting out of the box. Well, we're about to get out of this time box. I'm sorry to say this has been such a wonderful time with you, and um, at some future point I'd like to talk with you some more about process work because I feel like we've just barely touched the surface of, of really what this can do. Uh, some of the things uh, uh, that you talk about in your book, the hated voice or loving the block or dealing with the inner critic or the border song, um, 
uh, are all things that we've sort of touched on, but not in the kind of depth that I'd like to go back into. So uh, I'd like to talk to you again. Um, Been a big pleasure. I'm happy to come back anytime. Okay, great. Uh, is there some things that you'd like to offer our listeners uh, as a final uh, comments at the end here? What a great question that I don't know how to answer. The only... What seems to show up? What shows up is... Uh, it's so corny. <laughs> it's so corny. What shows up is um, just believe in your own beauty and including those parts of you that are ugly. Maybe it's, they're trying to teach you something that is more beautiful than you could even imagine. Thank you so much, Lane. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we've been talking with my guest, Lane Arier. And how can people get a hold of you, Lane? Uh, by phone at 415-456-7897, or by email at www.processworklane.com. Lane is L-A-N-E. Processwork Lane is all one word. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your being here. It's a big pleasure. Thanks, Anthony. I'm Anthony Wright, and I've been your host today on Attunement. And thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.